Hi, my name's Andy Day. I'm the founder and CEO of Capital A, and welcome to M&A Q&A. Today we have Scott Ellison, founder, CEO, and chairman of Ellison & Partners. Ellison & Partners is a global marketing and communications agency based in San Francisco. Scott founded Ellison PR in 2001 with his business partner, Andy Hardy-Brown, and grew the business to over 600 staff in more than 30 offices across the world. Formed after the dot-com bubble burst, Alison PR found its audience in digital early handling campaigns across MySpace and a video startup called YouTube. Alison PR was sold to MDC in 2010 when the agency was ranked as one of the top 10 largest independents in the world by fee size. Since then, MDC has been merged into Stagwell, where Alison and Partners has continued to thrive, making several acquisitions every year. We're going to be finding out about those insights learned in more detail, as well as his single balance sheet approach, and whether it's better to start new agencies or departments from scratch or whether to acquire. I'm really excited to have Scott on M&A Q&A today. Scott, welcome. How are you doing? Andy, I'm doing great. Great to see you and uh, speak with you. It's been a while, but uh, great to be on. I appreciate the invite. It has, has has been a while. So we're going to kick off with a quick background check on you, Scott, as we do with our guests every week. Can you tell us a bit more about how you got into marketing? You've been involved in PR straight out of college in the 80s. Is that right? Uh, yeah, pretty close. You know, Andy, I went to I went to San Diego State and I got a journalism degree with an emphasis in PR. And I had a, a, an internship my last year in college, and I was worked for Senator Pete Wilson's office, who was a California senator. And right out of college, I took a job at a political consulting firm called Direct Communications. So three days after graduating, I was shipped off to Dallas, Texas, and worked on the Texas governor's race and the Louisiana Senate campaign, which was great trial by fire. But I learned the hard lesson that after elections over, about 80% of the people in politics lose their jobs <laughs> and, you know, really had nowhere to go and decided to go back to San Diego. And I joined a small public relations firm called the Gable Group and spent 12 years there. Wow. So what, what made you decide to take a leap from working inside a PR firm to running your own agency? What were those early days like? Uh, well, it, it was interesting because when I left the San Diego firm, I was recruited to come up to San Francisco where I had grown up, grown up. So it was a bit of a homecoming and went to San Francisco and joined Connors Communications to run their San Francisco and Los Angeles offices. And this was 1999 and the dot com was absolutely booming. And San Francisco looked like the center of the universe to me. You know, it's like everything. If it, San Francisco had replaced New York and the U.S. as the place to be in that era. So I joined Connors. And funny enough, the COO of that company was Andy Hardy Brown. And so I spent two years, you know, working at Connors. A great experience kind of on the front lines of all things digital. Had a chance to work on some really interesting, you know, digital dot-com launches. But in the summer of 2001, things were really starting to, to fade. You know, the dot-com era was coming to an end. There was substantial layoffs. And Andy came out to San Francisco and we were sitting in a, a small cafe in San Francisco and, and having a few drinks. And I think the more drinks we had, the crazier the ideas got. And it was like, let's start our own agency. And, you know, we did. We launched in. We had two months to just dive in. and. 
we approached the owner of Connors Communications, Connie Connors. And at the time, they had offices in London, New York, San Francisco, and LA. And we proposed, why don't we buy the San Francisco and LA operation of Connors Communications? And, and so we did. And we closed that deal and relaunched on September 4th. 2001, which was a little auspicious in itself. We always joked that we had a great first week in business. <laughs> and then 9-11 uh, hit a week later and you know the world turned upside down. Mm. And it's funny because you have all these contingency plans. You start to build a business and jot down things and, and no one had ever factored in planes crashing into buildings. And oh, that's crazy. incredibly difficult time. I think everybody always has the, where were you? And at 9-11. And I remember sitting in our small conference room. We had about six, seven people in the company at the time, you know, watching TV and, and really in disbelief. And that launched a very difficult, you know, first year and a half. Uh, we learned the hard lesson that cash is king when you're a startup. We were woefully underfunded. And, you know, it was really 18 treacherous months after that to try to hold this fledging little business together. So I didn't realize that you were formed from an acquisition right off the bat. That's really interesting. So it was a bit of a carve out. Yeah, it was kind of a carve out, Andy. And, and, you know, we always say that, uh, you know, the, the, the owner of that company was, was pretty astute to cut her losses then, you know, right before things really, you know, turned into a downturn. So yeah, it was a bit of a carve out from that agency. And you know, we launched on September 4th, and then we spent two months trying to figure out what we were going to name this thing. And I was incredibly reluctant to put my name forward, but I kept getting pushed and pushed and sent. And the only way I would do it is if we could at least say and partners. And that was born of Allison and Partners, which then we launched that officially in November of 2001. I was going to ask you about that. So the other founder, Andy, he was the CEO of the previous company. His surname's Hardy Brown. So I'm just assuming Hardy Brown Allison was bit, a bit too much of a mouthful. It was a bit too much. And Andy was you know, so gracious at the time. And he just was not interested in, in putting that forward. So I, I always it was one of those classics where everybody took one step back and I was left standing on the line. You know, so... So maybe if it was it was a failure, then it would just fall on me. Fortunately, it didn't. That's an amazing story. So obviously, you went then for a few years, and the business did grow. How much revenue were you doing, sort of by two thousand and ten? Can you remember when MDC came knocking? Yeah, about you know approximate. It gets a little hazy over the years, Andy. We were we were right about twelve, thirteen million in revenue. Mm -hmm. And we really started talking. We met MDC as early as 2007 and had very casual conversations that amounted to really three years. Got to know them, got to know them very well. But we always knew back, back then that once you hit kind of 10 million in revenue, you would somewhat become in play of people, you know, inquiring about the, you know, the availability and we met with a lot of folks and nothing really seemed like it. We met kind of the cast of characters that you you know and, and can assume who we spoke to. And it just didn't feel like a right fit. And the MDC, you know, call it a courtship. We, we spoke to them for about three years before we finally did a deal. And we really liked their approach of leaving founders alone and letting them build their business 
rather than kind of shove it into some existing brand. And we were able to maintain, you know, Allison Partners. They took a 51% stake in the business at the time. So we still had, you know, an active equity stake. And they, they gave us the, uh, you know, a, a lot of the capital and things we needed to do to build the business. So cast your mind back to that period when you first got acquired. Was there any sort of hard lessons learned? Or, I mean, you've, you've already said they kind of left you alone, but, but was there a... You know, I think anytime if you're, yeah, if you're acquired by a publicly traded entity, I think probably in the earliest days, the, as I said, we were a standalone brand. We were the largest PR offering within NBC. So we, we sat in kind of a unique position. I think the biggest impact was on our finance department. There's a big difference between running a privately held business and then feeding into a publicly traded you know, business. So we had to raise our game on finance. You have to, you know, close within five days at the end of the month and, you know, pretty rigid process on your financials. So I would say the impact really fell upon our finance team at the time. And they took a 51% stake, which is quite common, isn't it, with um, traded companies? They don't really need to take any more than that. But was there any negotiations around them acquiring 100% of the business or was that always the deal? Well, you know, it really became our, you know, our option. They could put call options on, you know, we could put forward that we were interested in selling more of the business or periodically. And the, and the first put came up five years later, so 2015. And we opted to sell another 25% of the business in 2015. And then the final call came, I think, in 18. So we completed the earnout at the end of 2020. So a rather long 10-year earnout, which is kind of unusual. That is unusual. It's usually around three to five years, isn't it? So 10 years is quite a long long time. But it, we, it was hugely beneficial to us because, as you know, it works in Indy multiple against EBITDA. You know, we grew the business substantially. Yeah. Uh, you know, about 300, 400%, you know, so we benefited greatly from that growth period. So it was an interesting model for us. And it worked out very well for, for MDC at the time, too, as we became yeah. really a significant entity in their, within their portfolio. And they've continued to to assist you. I mean, your growth has been pretty phenomenal. I think you are pretty much sort of 10x, aren't you, from those days, or at least when they discussed pretty, pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. We'll come in at over a you know hundred million in revenue, you know, this this year. So pretty close to 10x. And and it would have been very difficult to do without having a strategic partnership. If you look at, you know, in those early days, the company was backed by Andy and myself's mortgage. So we had to, you know, our, our houses, and that becomes very precarious when you're building a business and launching globally, going into Europe, going into Asia would have been very difficult if we didn't have the capital from a bigger partner. Yeah, that's an amazing story. So you have this uh, business partner and co-founder, Andy Hardy-Brown. What's his role in the business now? Can you tell us a little bit more just specifically around M&A? Because I, I know I've met you guys a few times. And Andy... Yeah, no, Andy, Andy really led that. I mean, if we look at the structure in the early days, Andy led more of our back office, you know, finance, HR, you know, all of those areas where I kind of led more of the client service piece. And then as the company got bigger, Andy really led the charge on our M&A work. Um, he would be identifying companies, doing meetings with companies. And really a, the bold move was in 
about 2015, Andy moved to Singapore with his family and two young kids at the time and really was instrumental. He spent two years there launching and building our Asia operation. So Andy continues to really lead the charge on the the M&A activity. So can you tell us a little bit about your acquisition strategy at Allison? It sounds like, I'm, you know, Andy's not here to sort of explain what... Yeah, what I will have to be the stand, I'll have to be the stand in. And I play a role in it, you know, obviously as well. And I've done a bit more in Europe and spent time there and some of our deals there. You know, we started our, I think our first acquisition, I'm going to go way, way back, was actually a small firm in 2004 called Smith Public Relations in Los Angeles. And, you know, it was like five, six people, but was very key to helping us expand into the Los Angeles area. So we developed what we called a a process of aqua hires Mm. and kind of a quasi acquisition hiring the team, which you really try to do something strategic. It's as you know, Andy, you've been involved in the M&A side. If you, the small agencies, less than 10 people, uh, there's not a huge value on that business. So, mm-hmm. so can you really craft something that, that works for everybody? And that is typically you hire the entire team and you offer, it's a quasi-earn out over a four to five years, but it's really a commission on the business that is brought over. So it's kind of a, a hybrid model that works well for smaller entities. So that was our, our first one. And we did a few more over time. Probably the largest one was in 2013. We acquired Bob Frouse, Frouse and Company in Seattle. And that was about 18 people. We acquired a company in China. And that was around 2013. Small entity, but that really gave us the backbone of, of launching into China. Uh, we acquired a small agency in, in Tokyo and that added to to that. I would say, you know, the largest acquisition we did was in 2018 and we acquired one chocolate in the UK, which mm-hmm. was 40 people. And that was a much more traditional acquisition, you know, with the financing provided by MDC. And, and a much more traditional model where you know, upfront payments and then earnouts and, and, and so forth. So, I mean, it's interesting. You've done these smaller acquisitions as well. It sounds like you, you kind of got the flywheel going inside the business and start to make these smaller acquisitions because usually they're quite risky, aren't they? So like you said, any team less than 10 is, I mean... if, if Well, any- we try to do things that are digestible, Andy, yeah. you know, things that the risk is is not too big because you're right. I mean, as you know, the, the, the landscape is littered with failures in this area. And you can definitely try to take on something that's too big, you know. So for us, the sweet spot is, you know, revenue in that three to seven million range that the risk is not too high that you can do damage to the business. So we've spent a lot of time over the last, last couple of years. It's, it's been a little slower for us the last couple of years. There was the pandemic. We've looked at a variety of different things. I think in way in Andy because you're well adept at this it, it, it got a little hot I mean it got where the sellers mm-hmm. it was a seller's market you know for a while particularly in Europe the prices became pretty lofty mm-hmm. uh, and we just didn't we we, we pulled back a bit on that uh, things are changing rapidly it's interesting I have a son who's in real estate and 
He said it's very difficult, but he said it's really shifted from a seller's market to a buyer's almost overnight. The challenge being that the sellers haven't always quite got the memo and will hang on to 21 pricing. And and I think the same is in our industry. It's rapidly pulling off. Look, the money's not cheap anymore. And, you know, capital is really expensive. And I think valuations are really coming down. But I would trust you to weigh in too, Andy. I know you're close to this as well. Yeah, it depends where you're getting the money from, I guess. If you're buying off your balance sheet, then. And it's a, if it's in an area where it's really hot and you really need to get into. But but I was I was thinking that in, in terms of your strategy, what what have you wanted to get into? Because it seems, I mean, you you recently made an acquisition in Africa, I think. So it looks like you're buying geography. But what, what's the strategy behind your, your acquisitions? It is geography, without a doubt, and trying to enhance what we already have. So one chocolate was really significant for us. We were able to double the size of our London office. They also had an office in Munich, which we had a fledgling two-person operation in Munich. This really bolstered our operation in Munich. And they also had kind of a bonus of all this. They had six people in San Francisco that we were able to fold into our San Francisco operation. So that was really strategic. You know, we did the the deal with Claudine Moore, her business in in Africa, you know, a a smaller entity, but really gave us a kind of a foothold there. And that's what we continue to look at. We're looking at an opportunity in Germany right now that we're trying to get closed. We see Germany as a, a real strategic place like we do, you know, the UK, obviously. So continue to chip away pieces in Europe. We're looking at some things in Asia. We, I don't, you know, we have 14 offices in the US, so not so much looking, but we're looking for things that we could add on. We're, you know, exploring a, a healthcare agency as healthcare continues to grow for us. And, you know, so we'll continue to look at kind of those strategic partnerships, but we're not looking at, massive deals it's really very strategic kind of you know small to mid-sized entities that we think could really enhance what we have and can you explain a little bit about your process of finding those businesses and and then how you you approach that whole yeah no and it's it's because you know i think andy and i particularly andy we've built relationships over the last 21 years and we know you have so many different people it could be you know, agency folks that have maybe moved into M&A. There's a lot of M&A folks that are also around the world. We have like a lot of touch points mm-hmm. that feed in opportunities to us. And, you know, for a while, it got overwhelming, really. It was like you know, Andy and I were getting, you know, a couple of emails every day to take a look at things. As I think people were really rushing to sell in 2021. I think it's going to be a little more balanced coming coming out of that. We don't see that that push that we did. Um, so, you know, on balance, there's 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 a lot of opportunities, more opportunities than we could pursue, honestly. Yeah, there always is. There's always more sellers than buyers, that's for sure. Um, can I ask your advice around starting new agencies or offices or departments versus acquiring agencies? So I notice that you do sometimes start things up yourselves rather than buy the geography, like we just said. How do you decide which is the best approach to take? I think it's very opportunity you know, driven, Andy. We, you know, for example, we acquired a very small agency in Phoenix in 2004. Now, Phoenix was not really on our radar of strategically opening, 
It's now one of our larger offices, though, and it turned into a real positive for us. So it was opportunity. We met, you know, a, a really good group of folks and we thought, okay, this would be a good fit for us. And you know the drill. I mean, chemistry is such a big part of it. Um, you have to, when you go in an M&A, you got to really look at an agency. Is this going to be a cultural fit? So a lot of it is opportunity-based. And you, you get introduced to a group of people and say, wow, this could really impact our business in, in a positive way. So you kind of scale it from there. Some offices, you know, London's a great example. We started organically. And it was a, a woman that had worked for us in San Francisco and who had left to travel the world. And when she came back, she called me and it was Susie Hughes. And she said, I'd love to come back, but I don't know if I want to come back to the U.S. I've kind of got the global bug. And I'm like, well, Susie, you have dual citizenship. Why don't you open up a London office for us? So I always tease her that she started in her pajamas and her father's uh, flat in London. And that was the launch of our, our UK operation. So we have, you know, people that have opened up, you know, offices for us over time. And sometimes it's even driven by they need to make a move of some sort. So we've, we've got a couple of people in Miami now, and that was, they wanted to move to Florida during the pandemic. And and so we've launched up in Miami. So you you kind of look at the opportunities that are presented. So it sounds like you've you've taken sort of quite a non-traditional route to acquisitions and growth. Well, I, I think because we had to in the early days, Andy, you look at our first decade, we had no money. And so you were felt like you were rubbing sticks together to make fire and try to come up with you know really alternative acquisition plans that could be beneficial to the to the seller and to the buyer. And, and that's why we came up with our Aquire strategy. Now we have more resources and Stagwell gives us, you know, a larger publicly traded entity to back some, some bigger deals. But, but you're never going to see us try to play and acquire a $20, 25000000 million agency. You know, that's just not digestible at the time. And, and the risk profile becomes too high. Mm. And you've also taken a lot of personal risks, I think, as well, a lot of, of gambles to sort of build the business. It's really absolutely- Yeah, when you're younger and then you get older and you're not <laughs> as willing to, to gamble as much, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I totally get that. So what advice would you give to other agency CEOs who are looking to create a similar business through acquisitions? Can you um, tell us a bit about your single balance sheet approach? And what that is, and why? Yeah, you know, it's it's it, it, it's funny. Kind of the lessons learned early in my career. I was working at that small agency in San Diego, and there was a great president of the agency, Joe Charette. And Joe had come down from Burson Marsteller, Los Angeles, where he had been the general manager of the Los Angeles office, and I was like an account coordinator, and. He would tell stories about, oh, God, we couldn't stand the New York office, you know, because they were so competitive. They all had these individual P&Ls and were very competitive. And I'm thinking, you know, and this was an account quarter. That doesn't seem like a great, great model. And when we launched our company, as the company grew bigger, we said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to set up each office as a P&L on its own. And I'll tell you, Andy, there's a real reason for this, because if you're running a New York office and I'm running a San Francisco office and you have a PL, I have a PL, we're ostensibly competitors. Mm. 
We're fighting to hire people, fighting for our bonuses, and it is the it is not collaborative at all. So one PL means we've taken that completely off the table. And it's really interesting if you go into a new business opportunity and you have someone on the other side of the table who understands what we're talking about, who has experienced that molly, they're like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. Because they had seen how difficult it was to work with different groups or offices. So no one in our company has a, a bonus based on the performance of their individual office. It's all based on the success of the company. And it's funny because a lot of larger agencies are now trying to meet this model. Yeah, I think it's definitely more... It's a fairer system, isn't it? And I've, I've seen a, a lot of infighting in some uh, agency groups. I mean, there's been some very famous ones that have kind of fallen apart by acquiring businesses and keeping everybody on their own balance sheets. And they, they can... Well, we, we've, we've hired a lot of people, Andy, who came from, you know, we're a relatively large agency, but not the largest agencies. And we have a lot of colleagues now that have come from those agencies. And they're saying, gosh, it's just so much easier to do things and operate when you don't have that monkey on your back. Okay, so let's bring everything up to date with Allison and Partners. It's been a really impressive growth story up to now. Certainly the last 10 years has been supersonic. 30 countries, 600 employees. Correct me if that, that number's changed. And you've 10 There's 33 offices now, actually, Andy, but yeah, yeah, about 600 employees, yeah. 33 then. 600 employees plus, I guess, and, and 10x your revenue. What is your strategy for growth now? Are you big enough or are you going to make more acquisitions? What's yeah, your- you know, I think we'll, we'll continue to look at strategic acquisitions. We have a really big integrated offering. We have about 100 people in our integrated group. And we're going to continue to look at strategic acquisitions that gives us even more enhanced creative services. We have a, a vast video group, you know, production group, design group. So we'll continue to look at some strategic acquisitions that can enhance that. And we honestly believe that we could double the size of the company in in three years because of the footprint and the growth. We don't see the slowdown. And what's interesting now is we are being invited to pitch for really the biggest global opportunities. And we are competing against the world's largest agencies. We don't always win them. But we're being invited to the table for bigger things. So I, I think we're going to continue to, to really grow. We call it our vertical and horizontal growth, you know, Andy, and it's both the geographic, adding key locations, and continuing to add services that clients are, are feel are really important. So that that really is the growth model. And there's no slowdown. We had, you know, huge growth in 21. And uh, 22 is going to be not quite as big, but significant growth. So we've increased the company almost 50% just the last two years. So we don't see a slowdown. We see no sign of that. I think the opportunities are, are, are big and getting better, and we're pushing into different areas. Healthcare is really fast growing for us, in addition to what we do in tech and consumer. Okay, so it's a, an amazing, uh, huge growth story, and it looks like it's going to keep on going. I just want to ask you, because we ask our guests every week about the funding part of deals. I think that's possibly the most difficult part to get your head around when you're at least at the smaller end of the scale making acquisitions. And Allison's part of Stagwell, as you said, so I guess uh, you guys can access funding quite easily now. But is there any insights that you can give us around 
anyone that might be listening to this who's going to do their first. You know, I think the biggest thing is is trying to come up with reasonable offers. You know, Andy, there there is, and I know you've experienced there is seller delusion at times. Mm. Um, and I will protect all the names for the innocent, but I'll just give you a, a working example of this. I was actually talking to a small firm uh, in the UK. This is a few years back, and their I'll be generous. The billings were about four hundred thousand pounds on a good year, maybe a fifty, sixty thousand pound profit. And the owner of the business said that he hoped to get it check up front for two million pounds for the business, which is just it's just ludicrous. You know, there's no there's no formula, multiple path. And unfortunately, we see a lot of that. I think expectations, particularly if it's a group that's not represented by somebody who really understands MA and can really set the expectation. But I think a lot of sellers prevent their their the sale just by completely unrealistic expectation. And it's funny, and, and you see also where they have an outside advisor. It could be an attorney, a tax advisor who shoots down the deal. And you kind of cringe because you want to tell them that person just blocked the deal. That person is not going to bring you another opportunity. Mm. And as you know, Andy, that the number of agencies that actually do get sold it's a pretty small percentage. It is, yeah. It's very small. And yeah, we see that quite a bit as well. We'll have somebody bring in a, a lead. It's usually the legal guy. And they sort of start swinging, swinging their hips a bit. And yeah, they can really make things complicated very early on. It's usually best to get them involved as late as possible, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and they just need to make sense, legal sense of the deal that's already done rather than join in with the negotiation. And that's always good advice. Well, and I, it'll be interesting to see. I, you know, it's it's hard to tell if we're tipping into a recession. I mean, we're definitely seeing some early signs of of stress in the economy. The, the business is performing better than I would have thought. I thought we might be heading into a more difficult time. It's actually proven to be pretty resilient. If we go into a recession next year, having done this in the past, you all of a sudden see a huge uptick in seller market. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes it's uh, it's it's a bit too late in in the cycle. Oftentimes it's a an ownership profile where the owner or owners are are quite a bit older, and you kind of look at the numbers and see that maybe the best days are behind them. But you find an owner who owners that are like, I just can't go through another recession. I can't I can't do it. I can't rebuild you know, during, after a difficult time. And so they, and, and that's not the time really to, to try to sell. It becomes kind of more of a desperation. Mm. But we do see lots of new buyers coming in that situation. We did. Um, there is a lot more new buyers, Andy, and that's, and that's a great point. And I think, you know, when we sold in 2010, we didn't see the number of buyers that are involved now. You have private equity, you have um, newer holding companies. There's just a lot more buyers than there were certainly 12 years ago, without a doubt. Yeah, private equity has definitely changed that. They've got a massive interest in in marketing businesses for sure. Okay, so we're going to open it up for um, some questions. Uh, if any of our uh, guests on the, the call uh, want to ask you a question. But before we get to that, can you tell us how to stay in touch with Scott Allison? Where can we follow you? 
How do we, um, you know, see what uh, I'm pretty easy to find and follow. You can find me on LinkedIn at Scott Allison. You can catch me on email at scott at allisonpr.com. So call right. I'm, I'm, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Thank you very much for your time today. That's been, uh, that's been amazing. So we've got a question from Karim. He says, looking back on how much the company grew, knowing what you know now, would you still have sold such a big stake of your equity of such a valuable company? You know, absolutely. I think it's a fair question, but I think you you have to look at, at the long game and you want to be able to retire at some point. You want to put kids through college. You want to do all those, you know, life events. And I think that was a critical piece of it. I also don't think we ever would have been able to complete the global growth on our own. We needed a strategic partner. So absolutely, no hesitation would not change that process. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, because I think uh, some sellers are resistant to going into a, a bigger group and selling a smaller percentage. You know, I think they want 100% exit. And selling 51%, they, they kind of sniff at it a little bit sometimes. But it is about taking value off the table, isn't it, for your family, like you said? At some you know. point, you, you need to take value off the table. And it goes back to our comment, Andy, about, you know, and I, somebody told a percentage, and you may know more than I, that less than 5% of agencies ever get sold. Mm. And I remember speaking to a, an advisor once. I said, well, what, what happens? He goes, well... They're like old generals. They never die. They just fade away. And you know, some real truth to that. And I've seen experience people, you know, agencies that I remember from the 90s, early 2000s, who absolutely fell into that. They just kind of faded away. Mm. And so strategically, it it does give you the ability to take some money off the table. The 51% worked really well for us because then we were really able to maximize the growth over the next eight, nine years. Had we sold 100% of the company back in 2010, I would have had some regrets. Mm. Absolutely. Because we really would not have benefited from the growth. Yeah, you've had a massive benefit from the upside of growing over that period of time as well. Okay, Karim's ask a, a second question. So what would you say the strategic partner has provided you beyond capital? Well, I think it it was capital. We had access to finance people, legal people. We had access to a much stronger legal department. So we had some challenges around deals or other issues. We had access to to bigger groups in that area. Again, not only capital, but having strategic finance. It's not easy to do a deal in Asia and to have banking and accounting and finance relationships that could help set that up uh, was critical. And then there's kind of a secondary benefit. I always say, you know, go in with your eyes open because this is doesn't always work. But when you're part of a bigger entity, you do get uh, client opportunities. And both with MDC and Stagwell, we are one of the we're the largest PR entity, and we get to team up with some world class, you know, ad groups, creative shops. You know, you look at um, Anomaly, 72 and Sunny, Instrument, Code and Theory. Those are all terrific Stagwell sister agencies. And we have a chance to to work with them and, and have client opportunities. So there's, there, there's quite a few benefits to that. 
Yeah. So, so how does that work now? So, if you've sold hundred percent of the company, what what is the relationship with the holding company now? Do do you well, get Stagwell has taken on a very Stagwell's taken a very you know similar approach to MDC, and, and they let us you know build you know continue to build our company. I think mm. they value having founders involved and you know seeing the growth trajectory, and you know we're a big part of that Stagwell network. Okay, so Cam's just saying he's got one more last question. So in your experience, what would you say is the main driver to get smaller agencies to sell a controlling stake, to make them see the vision and upside and their trust to open up to the idea? I think it's really, what do they want to do? And if you want to grow your business and have a chance to really participate in global RFPs and work with some of the largest global brands, that's hard to do if you're a one location agency, 15 to 25 people. And so if you really have a vision of doing bigger things, that's not to say that it works for everybody. Some people really like, you know, Andy and I have the term uh, a lifestyle shop. You know, a lifestyle shop, and there's nothing wrong. You can have a 20, 25 person, you know, agency and you're the founder, CEO of the company. You're making a good living you're able to really create a nice lifestyle for folks, there's nothing wrong with that. So I think it's really kind of saying, what do you really have a vision of, of doing for? What do you want to do over the next five to 10 years? And there's no wrong answer, honestly. It's really what's going to be best for you. Mm-hmm. So you, you're still motivated and you're still uh, looking towards the future and growing the company. A- absolutely. I'm still motivated, still enjoying this. I'm excited to see at least some level of normalcy return. It's nice to be getting back out and you know visiting all the offices and working on new business. We've got some amazing people in the company and really inspiring to spend time with. The opportunities that we're getting, the RFPs, the, the new potential new clients, it's never been better. So all of that's really motivating. Andy and I, since day one, get excited about building companies and, and we're still getting a chance to do that. And I think as, as long as there's the chance to do that, we're going to remain pretty excited about the business. Okay, I've just got another cheeky little questions coming. So if we have time, what's the framework to merge the PL into yours? So how would that deal differ from keeping their PL separate? Uh, to do, uh, I want to make sure I get this right. If you're acquiring a company yeah. and keeping it separate, you know, we we have a couple separate entities that we. It's more called our Allison and Partner Group, and there are a few. We have a conflict shop that resides under that, and we have a, a, another small company storyline that works with us under under that entity. So you could look at putting something under that, but. You know, we've invested so much in building the brand. We have a significant marketing operation. You know, you spend a, a great deal and invest a great deal of money to build a brand. Uh, it becomes complicated then if you're looking at a butterfly collection of brands. And, and that's not really the goal. We're looking to build Allison and Partners and really give an opportunity for folks to tap into that growth. Brilliant. Amazing. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody who's participated. Thank you, Scott, for your time. It's been absolutely brilliant. I really appreciated it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, Andy, it's been great. Great to catch up. Great to speak with you. Hope to see you soon. Fabulous. Okay. Well, this will go out as a podcast now, so uh, and as well onto our YouTube channel. So all great. Thank you very much. And we'll speak soon. Thank you. Andy, take care. Yes, Scott.